Moncrief on News Talk. While the eyes of the world are on the Middle East, it's all too easy to forget that a war is still raging in Ukraine. The country was due to stage an election next year, but now that almost certainly won't happen. The logic being that to protect democracy, it has to be paused for a while. Donico Abakon is Professor of Politics at DCU. Donico, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Sean. Uh, and so, so uh, is it fairly unanimous? Is there any contention about not having an election in Ukraine next year? Oh, well, there are some people who have, mainly outside of Ukraine, who've said that Ukraine should go ahead, um, you know, with the elections, uh, that it's the essence of democracy and Ukraine has something to prove. And uh, they tend to be people who are usually critical of uh, Ukraine anyway, um, though one of the more, I guess, legitimate um, people in this regard is a man with the unfortunate name of Tiny Cox. He's uh, head of the uh, Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. And uh, he he has said that Ukraine should hold the elections. But within Ukraine, there's, you know, quite a consensus that this is not the time. Mm. And one would have thought there was massive technical issues with staging, um, uh, especially with so much displacement, both inside and outside the country. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, firstly, I mean, they're acting completely within the law. The Ukrainian constitution and the relevant legislation, which was devised before Zelensky became president, says that you cannot hold an election during a time of martial law. And martial law was imposed almost immediately after Russia's invasion last year. So there's the legal obstacle that you would have to overcome. And then, as you say, there are the practical uh, problems. I mean, approximately 7 million people have fled Ukraine since the beginning of the war. An additional 5 million perhaps are displaced within Ukraine. So you're talking about perhaps between a quarter and a third of the electorate who are no longer living in their constituencies. So, you know, devising an election electoral list, for example, would be impossible. Getting people to vote in their constituencies would be impossible. And then you have the the fact that air raids, uh, which can go from 20 minutes to several hours and have people scurrying for bomb shelters, they occur on a daily basis in, in many parts of Ukraine. So all of those things really run against the prospect of having an orderly election, having a free and fair election. And everybody's entitled to have the same right to vote. And of course, your right to vote or your your, right, your ability to exercise the vote will very much depend on where you live in Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, plus, also, e- even if it were possible to do it, um, could one fairly safely assume that uh, Zelensky and his party would be reinstated? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, this this war has has made uh, Volodymyr Zelensky's reputation nationally and internationally. I mean, you have to remember that when he came to power in 2019, he was a complete political novice. He had no political experience. He was a comedian who was uh, known for a a wonderful series, a comedy series called Servant of the People, after which he named his political party. So, you know, people projected onto Zelensky a lot of hopes and aspirations. It was very much a rejection of the status quo rather than an endorsement of any policies that he had. He really kept them to himself before the election. And that's the reason why he, he went into that election got 70% plus, the largest mandate of any president in Ukrainian history. And it rapidly dissolved into about 25% within two years. So he was, before this war, destined to be a one-term president, as all his predecessors going back to 2000 have been. Uh, But his, you might say, inspirational leadership has has very much made him uh, a very popular figure. So there's no there's no political space for an opponent or a rival right now. So it's not that he's kind of 
not holding an election because he's afraid of being dislodged by a popular opponent. There really is no other political figure uh, with the standing of Vladimir Zelensky mm. in Ukraine right And a lot of his platform when he did run... Uh, was about corruption. Uh, it had been an ongoing issue in Ukraine, still is to a certain extent. Now, I mean, he's done a bunch of firing people here and there, but has he really had a chance to tackle the the corruption in the country? They, they have made a lot of progress, um, and and part of it's the patriotism which is instilled in people during during a time of war, and that's been acknowledged by the European Union, uh, as you know, the, the Commission yesterday endorsed uh, the opening of talks. Uh, with Ukraine about eventual EU membership. So that, in, in, in many ways, is an endorsement of the reforms that they've already uh, taken. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, the whole idea of an election is, is, of course, the essence of democracy. But it's, I should add that this is not without precedent. If you look at, for example, the United Kingdom, um, you know, between 1935 and 1945, there was no election held in the UK during World War II. Um, and that was despite the fact the UK wasn't even invaded in terms of its land. Um, so, you, I mean, Ukraine has you know, has made a lot of reforms. It's like building a ship at sea at the moment. They're trying to maintain a state and reform a state while at war. It's a remarkable challenge for anybody. Mm. And and yeah, as you mentioned, the EU Commission has uh, recommended starting membership talks uh, with Ukraine. So from that, could we in, infer that they've reached the bar that's, uh, uh, that's of some degree of satisfaction uh, to Europe in terms of corruption? That's certainly the the... What, what the EU has said yesterday, that they have reached a sufficient bar uh, to move forward. And, and Ukraine is starting at quite a high, I mean, we tend to emphasize the negatives, but I mean, we, we took in, you know, 10 new countries in 2004, the vast majority of which had been behind the Iron Curtain just a decade earlier. And they were starting from a very low base, economically, politically, and in terms of democratic history, because they'd been for decades under authoritarian forms of government. Ukraine is, in many respects, a wealthy country, particularly in agriculture. That's why, for example, the, the the, the, the inability to export grain is having a huge effect on the global economy. So it has a lot to offer Europe. It's not; it, it, w- it wouldn't be just a taker. It would be some. You know, it would also be a, a major contributor, I think, to the Europe, U- European economy eventually. Yeah, and and the, the fact though that they the, the Commission has has announced the opening of, of these talks or recommended the opening of these talks does is that to a degree a shot across the bows also across russia because if you know if if at some point if the, if the war drags on and it looks like it is going to drag on yet at some point ukraine is accepted into the european union does does that change the calculus in terms of who might be potentially involved in this war well it won't change the calculus but the, the i think the european union has recognized the mistakes it made in the past of allowing kind of a gray zone of buffer states to exist between Russia and the European Union. And they realize unless they, you know, embrace these countries like Ukraine, like Moldova, like Georgia, um, that they would be, you know, essentially vulnerable to being annexed uh, either politically or militarily uh, by Russia. And, and and there is a dividing line, of course, in Europe between uh, democracies and dictatorships. And, and, and Ukraine is on one side of that. I mean, it's, we, we're talking about elections, but it's interesting to note that Russia has elections next year, you know, in March. They will go ahead, despite the fact that Russia's, uh, you know, attacking Ukraine. But that's that's because they don't hold real elections, of course, in 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 Russia. Um, you know, you're not going to get bets at Paddy Power about who will who will be the victor in that particular election. We all know it'd be Vladimir Putin. Whereas in 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 Ukraine, in Moldova, and countries like that, they see Europe as an oasis of stability, of prosperity, and of values which they'd like to be associated with, and they see it as a way of escaping a very vicious 
cycle of history. Uh, and this war is just the latest manifestation of that. So, so this, this kind of um, result yesterday from the European Commission is, is going to be very well received in those countries yeah. as, as, as that their future lies with Europe. No, but I suppose what I meant was that if Ukraine, in three years' time, say, for instance, if the war is still going on, Ukraine becomes a full member of the European Union, then can Ukraine, under the terms of its membership of the European Union, ask for aid for, from the other members because someone's attacking it? No, because the, the Europe, well, firstly, it would not be as quick as three years. I yeah. mean, there's countries in the Western Balkans which have been waiting for 20. But the figure that's been bandied about uh, is, is 2030, though that might be optimistic in itself. And we'd all like to think that the war will have concluded well before uh, 2030. But it, just to take your hypothetical, if it was to happen very soon, would the European Union be dragged in? The, the simple answer is no. Um, you know, and that's the reason why if you take a country like Cyprus, Cyprus is, div- is a conflict zone, you might say. It's divided between, a, you know, the Turkish North and the, the Greek-dominated South. They both have their external sponsors. That, and that's the reason why Cyprus can be in the European Union, because the European Union is not a military alliance, mm-hmm. but it cannot be in for obvious reasons. So, so no, the European Union is not a military actor. It's, it's, it's more a payer than a player in terms of the geopolitics. Yeah, but I think you can ask for aid, though. Uh, um, uh, so, which uh, which might involve sending troops, not necessarily to face off against Russian troops, but if you had troops from other parts of the European Union on Ukrainian soil, that might escalate things to some degree or another, uh, from Russia's point of view. Well, the, e- the EU has de facto outsourced the, the military aspect to, to, to NATO. The vast majority of EU countries wear the, the, the other hat of NATO as well. Ireland is, is one of only three or four countries in the EU, which is not also a member of NATO. So there, there is no kind of, as I said, formal institutional structure whereby the EU countries would be obliged to send troops to another country. Sending aid, of course, is a different thing, but the EU is doing that already. Mm. It's giving a lot of aid to Ukraine, military aid as well, and Ukraine is not even a member of the European Union. Uh, well, we'll uh, keep an eye on that. Uh, Donica, thanks very much uh, for talking to us today. That was Donica back on there, Professor of Politics at the School of Law and Government uh, in DCU. Moncrief, weekdays at 2 p.m. on News Talk.